Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we're delighted to be with you today and to have a special guest with us today, whom we'll introduce in just a moment. This week, we're going to be studying Ezekiel in a lesson titled, A New Spirit Will I Put Within You. Today, we're going to talk about Ezekiel, and he lived in that time we know well because we know the Book of Mormon so well, and that was the time that Lehi was preaching that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. And now we've studied Jeremiah together, and we know he was preaching at the same time the same message. Well, in 598, Nebuchadnezzar had the elect of Jerusalem deported. And they were deported, of course, to Babylon. And among that group was Ezekiel. Ezekiel was fairly young at this time, but he came from a priestly family. And it was just the cream of the crop of Jerusalem that was deported with Ezekiel. So that gives you a little time frame for what we're looking at today. And we have to look at it with us, McKay Christensen, whom is one of our favorites. We've been privileged to be in his Gospel Doctrine class many many years and that's been a joy for us, but he has studied the gospel very seriously for a long, long time. He has a PhD in organization and adult learning. He is the author of several books, including Open Your Eyes, and that also has a podcast that goes with it. He is the president and chief executive officer of Thanksgiving Point, and his wife, Jennifer, and he are the parents of five children. So, McKay, tell us what you think about Ezekiel. I'd be happy to. Let me say first, Maureen and Scott, thank you for the service that you both do with this wonderful podcast. For all of us who listen to this as we walk or as we're driving in the car or as we're doing our gospel study each week, it is a huge help and inspiration, practical inspiration for us in our lives. And I know you spend a lot of time and effort in this. And I just want to say on behalf of all of your listeners and me and my family, thank you for your service here. It means a great deal to us. And I'm excited to talk about this wonderful story of the children of Israel and Ezekiel. You know, we've been doing Come Follow Me now for about four years. And I thought to myself, we ought to be pretty good at it by now. We've had a lot of practice. And one of the things that I've learned as I approach a Come Follow Me lesson is that I've learned two really important skills. The first is to take the they, there, and then of the situation, like Ezekiel, and apply it to the me, here, and now in my life. You know, we learned from Isaiah that the prophets, speaking on behalf of the Lord, really speak about multiple times. When you read their words, it may be applied to the people of that time, but it also has great application to us and to people of other times. So it's really important as we go through this particular Come Follow Me lesson to consider, oh, what can I learn and apply to me in my day from, the, from Ezekiel and the people who have been scattered and taken away into Babylon? The second lesson that uh, I've learned is to consider the overall theme. If I can, just as Scott mentioned, think a new spirit will I put within you, Remove your stony heart, as Ezekiel said, the Lord will remove their stony heart and put a new spirit within them. And as I study and go through these verses, think, how is the Lord doing that with these people and with me? And what can I learn about the Lord and how he administers his gospel to his children? So in that mind, uh, let me just tell you this quick story that might set the stage of 
how the Lord, even in our day, takes a stony heart and puts a new spirit within us. When my oldest daughter was halfway through college, she uh, was considering serving a mission. And she was 22 years old, and she was wondering, is it right for me? Should I stay here and focus on my future and my family, potential family, or should I serve the Lord? Uh, and she had a good heart. She was trying to live the gospel, but like all of us, she started to have some hardening elements in her heart, and the world was having its way with her a little bit. And she started to pray about serving a mission, and she prayed and considered and prayed again and considered some more, but she couldn't get clarity of mind about whether she should stay in school or whether she should serve. So she called me one evening and she said, what should I do? And I said, well, why do you want to serve a mission? And she said, well, I love the Lord. I love Jesus Christ and I want to serve him. And I kind of feel like I'm inspired, but I'm not sure. So I told her, look, begin the process of submitting your papers. My experience is that when you move deliberately in the direction that you feel inspired to act, sooner or later, the Lord will reveal to you the right or wrong of the thing. So she did. She started her mission papers and she kept praying, but had little confirmation. Uh, and, and she came to her last interview with the bishop. She did that. And she said, what should I do? And I said, just keep going. You'll, you'll learn. The Lord will teach you. Well, she submitted her papers and she received her mission call. She was living in her apartment in Provo and we all, we were here in the area at the time. So we got together in a conference room and we opened those papers together. We had all her brothers and sisters on a phone call. And when she opened the call, it said, Sister Christensen, you're hereby called to serve the Lord in the London, England mission. And everybody was screaming and cheering and it was an awesome thing. But I looked to her and she wasn't cheering and she wasn't smiling. She just had this look on her face and I was wondering, what was the matter? Was she disappointed? What was going on? And while everyone was still kind of making a ruckus, she turned to me and said, now I know. Now I know. And the Spirit had told her what path was right for her at the time. Well, she left, went on her mission. She struggled like many missionaries do at times. And uh, she served a faithful mission. And when she came home, I was amazed. I mean, she had the same body. It was the same person. But there was this spirit inside of her that was entirely different. She had this maturity about her that was well beyond what you could imagine. She was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that I hadn't seen from her before. And she had a testimony that was going to be a bedrock for her and her life. And as I contemplated this, it was the scripture from Ezekiel that came to my mind from, you know, chapter 36, 26. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And just as the Lord does it in our day by taking missionaries to a different land, we're going to see that Ezekiel's going to tell us he's going to do the same thing with these wonderful children from Jerusalem who need the stony heart changed to a new spirit. I love that, McKay. And I was just thinking as you were talking about your precious daughter and also just the application of this, I was thinking about this was King Benjamin's whole 
desire when he was preaching. And at the end, it's one of my favorite scriptures in chapter 5 of Mosiah, verse 2, because here we see the exchange of hearts. There we we see the difference between a stony heart and this fleshy tablet that the Lord can write on. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us, or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. And I love that view. And doesn't that demonstrate so much about God's attributes? He is a healer. He helps us grow. He changes our stony heart to a a heart where his word can be written upon it, and it's a fleshy heart that can respond to the Spirit. I think about how sad we all were when the Provo Tabernacle burned, and it just seemed so devastating, and then it became a temple. So things that look like they are unrenewable, uh, impossible, and when we feel like we're impossible, that we can't see beyond the weaknesses that seem to hold us back. The Lord sees so much more. There is just a joy and a glory in what he can do inside of us. And I don't think that we always see it happening day by day. But when we look back, we can see that as we've been faithful to him, we're not the same person we were. We see better. We see farther. We're more responsive to the Spirit. I love knowing that about God that that is what he does. Isn't that Ezekiel's message here in these chapters, that there is hope, that you may in your life be feel like these children of Jerusalem, scattered, um, the, your life is turned upside down. Maybe over time you've let your trust move from the Lord to the things of the world, to tradition. Maybe you've placed your trust in your smarts or your education. And the Lord's trying to, he has a long view. He's trying to make something of you. And there is hope. And Ezekiel's talking now to these people who have a new view. They they don't have the same view they had a few years ago. Their view now is we're captive and will we ever return? And will there ever be mercy? And his message is, yes, I will bind up uh, the brokenhearted and you will return. You can be redeemed. And that's a message for our day. And I love the me here and now, I think is the term you used at the beginning, because I was thinking about this in relationship to just myself. Do I ever recognize in me any parts of my heart that are becoming stony, that are not able to receive the word of the Lord, that aren't or that are resistant to the spirit in any way, shape or form? And Maureen and I have this thing in between us uh, in our relationship that's very handy. And that is, we can always tell if one or the other is a little depressed or a little down or a little discouraged in any way, shape, or form. And so we'll say, what's wrong? And we'll say, nothing. You know, you respond very quickly. You feel defensive. No, what's wrong? I can tell you're not quite there. No, I'm just fine. And then the question comes, what is it that you're believing right now that isn't true? And when Maureen asked me that, or I asked her that, um, if you're humble enough, you can get to the base of things and 
that is really identifying a stony place in your heart. It's identifying a place where you're resistant to learning from the Spirit. And I, I just hope and pray every day that I can have that fleshy tablet on my heart that the Lord can write clearly and openly on my heart and that I'll receive everything He has to say to me. I love the images that Ezekiel gives us. And one thing he talks about is the healing of the Dead Sea, that water will flow out from the temple in Jerusalem and flow toward the Dead Sea rising as it goes. And that the Dead Sea, which is currently unable to support any fish, any life except most extreme, um, would be healed and would be an abundant giver of fish and the trees would grow along its side. This means a lot to us because we go to Israel every year leading tours and we see that Dead Sea and we know how really dead it is and how arid it is all the way around the Dead Sea because of that highest content of salt um, in the world. And so here we are at the Dead Sea imagining what it would be to be a healed sea. And so there again is a very concrete image of what the Lord does to heal us so that we can be abundant, so that we can give. And aren't we so glad we don't have to depend on ourselves to find our way? Because I I don't know how to lift myself up from my stony heart, but I really count on the Lord to see how to do that for me and, and to help me. And it means the world to me when I can feel his softening and changing me. It's a powerful imagery that you talk of, Maureen, and you're talking about Ezekiel 47, verses 8 and 9 in particular, where the Lord says that these waters will come forward and everything that they touch, uh, the fishes will, that will multiply, everything will be healed and, 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 and will grow. And I think it's great imagery of what happens in our day with the temple. I think if we could see things as they really are, I think we would see that healing is coming forth from the temples in just like a river in multiple ways with the individual revelation that happens there, with the change of nature that happens to us as we go to the temple. And literally, I believe our very nature, our very person evolves and changes and is improved. And in particular, the revelation to the prophets and to our prophet that is given in the temple that then, like we'll, we experience in general conference, will turn and be given and will come forth just like those healing waters to help us to not have to do it on our own, like you said, Maureen, but give us the guidance that we need to become who we're supposed to become. Every year when we're in Jerusalem, there is a moment when we are driving on top of the Mount of Olives and we'll say to our participants. Now, look to your right as we're going north. Look to your right. See that? That's the Judean wilderness. That's the east. That's the land that goes down to the Dead Sea. Now, look over there. Look back to your right. Right there. See, there's the Dead Sea. And it's just this immense wilderness, and it's dark and brown, and it's just uh, not, not many living things out there. And you look to your left, and there's Jerusalem. And I loved what you were saying, McKay, about the the healing waters. I think this is the living water of Christ, and it really is 
coming out of the temples. And you're absolutely right. When we go to the temple, we partake of that living water. And I think that in Ezekiel's day and his prophecy is not only that the Dead Sea would be healed, because sometimes we might focus on, oh, there's going to be tremendous amount of fish and and there's trees on either side of this great river and the trees themselves give forth medicine and they're they're a, a very uh, healing set of trees, all these different things. But I think it's the healing of the nation of unbelief, of, of nations of unbelief. It's a, it's a symbol of healing everyone and not just the healing of the Dead Sea. And I can imagine this as, in fact, I've sometimes thought about this just geographically. I've wondered if it was the drainage of the Kidron Valley, because that drainage goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. And I think sometimes, well, maybe that's where the river will flow is down through that that area, but I can just imagine that healing water just coming into that immense desert, immense wilderness down in the lowest place on the face of the earth in the Wadi al-Arabah, the deepest rift in the whole world. I don't know, Scott, if when you stand there and you experience that and you look at the reality of the current state and you say to yourself, could this ever be renewed? Could it really ever become what is prophesied? And I think for the me here and now, sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, no, I can't. I'm too weak. I, I've made too many mistakes. I'm, I'm not who I should be, or I'm too far removed, or whatever it is that we all may experience from time to time. But just like you standing there and seeing the almost impossibility of the change that will come about, uh, the same goes for us. The Lord can redeem. He will help us. We can become who we're supposed to become. And I think that is the message that Ezekiel is trying to say is that the Lord sees us not in our life here, but in eternity. He, the, his view of us is, is in eternity because that is his view. And it's not limited to the current circumstance or the current element, but it is an eternal view. And he, he will help us. He will be there for us. He is the shepherd, and he will gather us to his bosom, and we can change and be renewed. And that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Ezekiel is trying to communicate to these people who have forgotten their way, so to speak. Well, and everything in addition to us, our families, sometimes it seems like it's impossible to be united, or you worry about a child who seems to have completely left the gospel behind. And you think, this will never change. There is nothing I could say or do. And we're right. Sometimes there is nothing that we could say or do. But the Lord is this remarkable healer. And he can heal our families and our nation. All the things we worry about that seem to have gone too far too far beyond that kind of redemption. I love the the things he the words he describes these children of Israel and Babylon to be, you know, they're spoiled, they're rebellious. He's very clear. He sees clearly and even still he sees what they can become. So it's not just us but it's it's everything. Everything that we lose hope in sometimes. We look around and we say things will just never be better. But they will be not better, but glorious if we'll turn to the Lord. We look at death of a loved one and we say, 
It will be so long before we're together again. And we, we put them into the grave and we feel so sad. And the Lord, again, knows exactly how to heal. This is another image that we get in Ezekiel because he takes us to the valley of dry bones. And um, he watches as the dry bones uh, are kind of reassembled. And then, thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and ye shall live. And that again is this, it's not only the image of resurrection, but it's the image of healing of our whole souls. I will cause breath, which is the spirit to enter you and ye shall live. What a positive thing to know, you know, and to carry with us on those discouraging days or to carry with us on those days when it just seems so overwhelming. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I want to put that on a wall plaque in my in my office so I can look at it every day. Isn't Ezekiel so powerful in his choice of words and in the words that the Lord gave him that he's speaking? His description of this valley of dry bones. No hope. Everything is gone. Everything is dried up. There is not even the slightest hint of life, uh, but the Lord will redeem, restore, resurrect, and bring to life from the dust. Uh, again, just great imagery about the impossibility uh, of, at least it appears to be impossible, that these bones could ever rise again. Yet, Jesus has power, the Lord has power to resurrect and to redeem and restore. That is so extremely hopeful. It just gives me so much joy. I was reading from Elder Rasband this last week, who just did an article about hope in Christ, and he talked about giving yourself some uh, protection scriptures, he called them, but just scriptures that remind you of the hope that you have in Christ. And this certainly is one of those images that I like to place in my mind, this valley of dry bones. There's a lot of places in Israel by the way, that have a lot of dry bones. There's a place even in the Garden of Gethsemane, just over to the north of the traditional garden, there's a little private garden. And if you go over to one corner of it, there's a little opening in the wall there. And if you look in the wall in that dark opening and you just even turn on your phone flashlight and look in there, it's a whole enormous area just full of bones. And, you know, you just think of that and then thousands, even millions of other places like that. They're just all these dry bones, and the Lord is going to give life to all of them. And I wonder when we think of a valley of dry bones, if it's a, a valley where there was a war, that's why there's so many dry bones. So uh, people came to the ultimate in division and violence, and now all they are dry bones in a, in a valley. And even that, the Lord knows completely how to deal with and transform and heal. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, you've got to ask yourself the question about this story of Ezekiel and the children of Jerusalem. Why did the Lord scatter them in this way? And I believe it is that the Lord needed to give them a new view. They needed to see with new eyes um, what was important in life and who really was uh, their savior. You know, Nephi tells about Lehi's attempts to preach to these very people. In 1 Nephi chapter 1, 19 and 20, it says, 
And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified of them. For he truly testified of their wickedness and abominations, and he testified of the things which he saw and heard, and also the things which he had read in the book, manifested plainly of the coming of a Messiah and the redemption of the world. And it says, when the Jews heard these things, meaning the Messiah and the redemption of the world, they were angry with him. And even as with the prophets of old, whom they cast out and stoned and slain, they also sought his life that they might take it away. Then here's what Nephi says, and this is really important. I, Nephi, will show unto you the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty, even unto the power of deliverance. So I think the Lord wants to show these people that he has power to deliver them and where they should look. Maybe they've been taken so much in the way of tradition that they've forgotten the Lord. They've forgotten the Messiah. Maybe they've become so ingrained in their own lives and the lives of the world and they trust only in themselves or their bank account or their friends uh, uh, that now all of a sudden they need a new view. And I think sometimes we, we wonder in our life, why am I going through this challenge? You know, because the covenant path isn't a problem-free path, you know. Why am I enduring this? And it might be for a similar reason, that maybe we need to return to and place our trust in Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. And I really enjoy the image that we see in Ezekiel of his seeing a roll or a scroll of a book and that he is told to eat this roll, which sounds really strange. And so I opened my mouth, he says, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, son of man, in this case, he's talking about um, Ezekiel because son of man here really just means human or ben adam not son of man of holiness, like we talk about with Christ. But he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. This is a a beautiful image of feasting upon the words of Christ, like we read in the Book of Mormon. And the psalm says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. And so I think having his words become more and more in our DNA, cell deep. These words are about the Savior being our Redeemer. These scriptures that we read are about how we can heal. And the Lord wants us to turn to them and eat them, as it would. I mean, you can't find a more visceral, tangible word. Let's make this a part of you. You eat it. You make it a part of you so that your outlook is totally changed and you look to the Savior in all things. And in some ways, that's the same thing as being removed to to someplace else to get a different view. I find that it's really easy to take upon yourself the secular view of the day because you're pounded with it all the day long, and you check the news, and you see what's going on. I love to escape to the scriptures and remember what's really going on, that the Lord is about healing us all. And if we're willing, we will be healed. Well, the Lord asks us to feast upon his words, and so there's that same eating image again, but feasting seems to be more like the tree of life when Lehi was eating it and and finding that it was so delicious that he couldn't help but want to share it with his family, and that kind of feeling of, and even when Joseph Smith Sr. had the vision that he had of a tree of life, 
he was eating this and it was so delicious that he began picking it up by double handfuls because he was so enlivened and refreshed by this delicious taste that he'd never had before. And I think that's what the Lord invites us to do is to feast upon his words and they do become delicious like honey to us, sweet as sweet. I love what you said, Maureen, that it actually becomes part of our DNA, that we assimilate it. We It becomes part of us. And that's, I think, you can get a new view in one of two ways. You can go through what here the children of Jerusalem are going through, the Lord's helping them get a new view, or you can use his word to keep that view, that new view in your mind. And that's how what I think the word does. It enables us to see things. You know, you can see the story of the tree of life. You can see the experience of the brother of Jared and their travels. You can envision it and it can become yours in the process. And as a result, that new view empowers us. Let me give you a simple example. If you had an absolute certainty, meaning you saw in a vision and it was clear that your nine-year-old son was going to grow up to be a world-renowned heart surgeon, would you treat him differently? When he didn't do well in his first science exam, how would you react? Uh, you, You would see him through it. You would be encouraging, right? Because you knew exactly who he could become and who he was going to be. And it would actually change your behavior. And I think that's what the power of the word does for us. It enables us to see ourselves and God in an eternal view so that when the circumstances of our day come along, we can see ourselves through it. We can maintain our faith because we keep the the word. It's become part of us and our view is new. You know, it reminds me of the story that President Irene told once in conference about when his son was very young. And he was crying in his bed or something. I don't remember the exact details, but President Irene went in and he picked him up, um, you know, rather strongly. And um, he was just about to, to really be upset with him when the spirit said to him, don't be mad at him. He's going to be a great man. And I don't know if it was don't be mad at him, but it's something like that. He's going to be a great man. And in that moment, his image was changed. So... You know, President Irene could not look at that son in the same way again. And I think if we realize that all those around us are going to be great men and women because the Lord sees us as something more, if we could recognize in our days when we are feeling really low about ourselves or like we haven't done much with our lives or whatever it is Satan tempts us to feel, if we could know that the Lord is looking at us in a highly different light. He sees where we are as very temporary. He sees this iteration of ourselves as very temporary. And I think we need to be kind to ourselves where we are and reaching with joy to where the Lord wants us to be through his atonement. I think as leaders in the church as well, I remember interviewing, of course, hundreds of students as we were Uh, in the bishopric at BYU, but I remember a number of times when there were particularly difficult problems that were being presented, and I remember when the Lord would give me His view of them just for a brief moment, and I could see who this person really was, 
And it, I felt like I was on holy ground. I felt like I needed to take off my slippers from off my feet because the ground whereon I was walking was indeed holy ground. And uh, it, it really does change your perspective to know who you are talking to. And the Lord can give that to us. It's a good prayer for us to ask the Lord to help us to see people as he does. And that would really change our whole view of life. And it would be really wonderful to pray to help us to see ourselves as he sees us. Maybe that would inject a little hope into our being. Yeah, that would be quite a view, wouldn't it, to see ourselves the way the Lord sees us. You know, I don't remember who said it, but it was part of this Come Follow Me Lessons reading, and it may have been Elder Holland, I'm not sure. But the quote was, The Lord put Israel's best in captivity to teach Israel's best what redemption is and who is their redeemer. And I think that sometimes when we ask ourselves, why is it, am I going through this little bit of a battle or trial or big battle or trial? What's the purpose? And oftentimes I think that's exactly what the Lord is doing with us. He's taking his best, that's you, and helping you remember um, who is your redeemer. He does us a real favor when he lets us get to the point where we see that our mind, our will, our talents are not sufficient to save us from whatever situation we're in, that we absolutely have to turn to him as a higher power. That is a favor because until then we're living in a trance, in an illusion. And he wants to wake us up to the reality of what really is and the reality of him. I I love the parts in Ezekiel where he's referring to God, like in the first chapter when he has this vision and is given this calling to be a prophet. You know, we, much of that is a, is confusing because you can't, as he describes what he sees, it's very hard to put spiritual things into words. But I love in verse 28, he said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice. And it reminds me that when we seek to describe spiritual things, we often have to turn to metaphors because we don't even have the vocabulary for who he is or what he is. In Doctrine and Covenants 110, when the Savior appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple, they attempt to describe him and they say we saw the lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us and under his feet was paved work of pure gold in color like amber so they start using metaphors in color like amber his eyes were as a flame of fire because we have no way to describe his eyes the hair of his head was white like the pure snow his countenance shone above the brightness of the sun and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters I mean, we have no way to describe this mighty God because he is so mighty, but we feel him personally, especially in our weakness, especially when we need to be lifted, especially when we're so discouraged. I can't count the times when I've knelt down and I've been so blue or so discouraged and I I raised from my knees and felt an injection of hope again. And that's what the Lord does. That's what he does with that new heart. Joseph Smith said the same thing in the sacred grove. He said, as he tried to describe 
the Father and the Son, he said, whose brightness and glory defy all description. He didn't even attempt it. He said, I, I can't. It's just beyond any description I could come up with. And I think if we understood who this being is or these beings that we worship and how wonderful, how glorious, how full of light, how full of love they are, I think it would change our whole approach to having hope on a daily basis. And when we are told that we will have a joint inheritance with the Lord, that inheritance is our nature is like his. That's the inheritance that we're looking for. Hard to even imagine as we describe who God is that there's any hope for that kind of change. And that is exactly what the Lord says he can do for us. Right. I mean, when I look at my life, I think I'm kind of like a valley of dry bones. I mean, how could I ever be like him, right? It's going to take a change of the Red Sea to change me into a being like he is. But that is the message. That is his plan. That is the purpose. That is why he gave his life for us, is to help us rise to become exactly like him. What a what an amazing thing. We can't miss just looking briefly at Ezekiel 37 in verse 15. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, And all of you who've served missions or have studied the scriptures will recognize the scripture. Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, and that stick could be translated as scroll, and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick or another scroll and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. This is a clear reference to the Book of Mormon and the Bible and making them one in our hands. And these two books go forth as the missionaries go forth into the world and as we do our missionary work, that we bring them together as testimonies of each other. And each of them testifies of Christ and brings them to that atoning sacrifice of the Savior. I remember, Scott, in General Conference in 1982, I still remember this to this day, after the brethren had worked so hard under the direction of Elder Packer to bring about the indexing and the references that were incorporated into our new scriptures. It was such a change in the scriptures. It brought so much more information. And one of the very uh, best things about it was the cross-referencing between the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Bible. And uh, Elder Packer said this in that conference. He said, the sticker record of Judah, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the sticker record of Ephraim, the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ, are now woven together in such a way as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other. As you learn from one, you are enlightened by the other. They are indeed one in our hands. Ezekiel's prophecy now stands fulfilled. I love that. I remember it too so clearly. What's also interesting is there's this sense of oneness and unity between um, the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim, that they are both testifying of, of Jesus Christ. And then as you continue in that chapter, 
it's also all about the covenant of peace and, and the building of the temple, 26 and 27. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there is the ultimate covenant phrase, I will be their God and you shall be my people or they shall be my people, tied in with the oneness of these these two sticks coming together. So it's this beautiful all things in one that the Lord is talking about. So not only does he heal us, but he unifies us, and that is the very essence of Zion. When you read that verse, Maureen, his tabernacle will be among us or among them. Is that reference to a building or is that reference to Jesus Christ himself? And what an amazing thing it will be to have Jesus Christ in our midst. I mean, can you imagine uh, just what a glorious thing that would be to have him amongst us, to be able to hear his words in person, to be able to feel his spirit in person will be a remarkable day. One last note on chapter 34 of Ezekiel that I think is important to bring up before we end today. And that is the Lord reproves the shepherds of Israel because they have not been feeding the flocks. They have not been giving them correct teachings. They have gone astray. And when the shepherds go astray, that means the blood of the people is upon their shoulders and they have to bear that burden. And so, but I think there is hope in this because in verse 15, he says, I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. And so he he says, I will become the good shepherd, I will be your shepherd. But boy, does he ever reprove those who don't uh, feed the flocks and give them the proper nourishment that they need spiritually. Well, and he uses another image, too, of the watchman. And a watchman is someone who would be upon a tower and watch for the enemy to approach. To the, In fact, the Great Wall of China is all about having a place for soldiers to be upon the wall and watch for enemies to attack. So um, this role of watchman is really important. Uh, same thing in a vineyard. You have a watchtower so that you can tell if someone's going to come into your vineyard and steal um, your fruit. So this idea of being a watchman, of being a shepherd, we are called to do that as covenant people. We're called to do that for each other. And the Lord takes it very, very seriously. I think we're also called to be shepherds and watchmen for our children and for our families. We absolutely have to teach them the gospel and teach it without apology or not act like we're taking up their time or saying, I'm sorry, I know you would rather see this show than read the scriptures together. But we have to do that job or we are like the shepherds who let the sheep just go wild. Um, Or we are like the watchmen who put down our our trumpet and forgot to see when the enemy was coming. So we, we really have a job that comes with all this privilege that is ours. One last note there in verse 3 of chapter 34, speaking of the shepherds of Israel, he says, Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool, and ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. Meaning, you take their tithes, you take their faith, 
and you use it for your own good, for to raise yourself up for, for your own purposes, instead of uh, not slumbering and watching with a flock and pointing them towards the one true shepherd, you've started to do it for yourself rather than for me. A really good lesson as to what we're called to do. We're not called for our own gain or for our own purpose or our own reputation or anything else. We're called to point them to the good shepherd. Uh, and I think that's one of the primary reasons that Ezekiel is taken away with these people is to help them see that when they return, they need to be shepherds in his cause, in the Lord's cause. And it's interesting in summary that it is in being the shepherd, in being the watchman, in giving that kind of service that we are healed. We aren't just healed because we sit in a room by ourselves. We're healed because we seek to serve the Lord by serving his children. And that is a powerfully important thing to him. You know, we obey the commandments, but immediately we're blessed for obeying the commandments. What can we really do for him? What we can really do for him is feed his sheep. And that we want to be about. That's all for today. We're so grateful that you joined us. We're grateful to have had McKay Christensen as our special guest today as we've discussed these chapters of Ezekiel. Next week, the lesson will be Daniel chapters 1 through 6 and entitled, There is No Other God That Can Deliver. We're grateful to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast and a special thanks to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a great week and see you next time.